Hey, everybody. We're missing some folks tonight in part because I just found out that the Millers, Fred and Kathy, um, had a, or Kathy is positive for COVID. So their group, and I think their whole small group met this week. And so we've lost like a group's worth of people from, from our service tonight. Um, but more importantly, our friend Kathy um, is positive for coronavirus. So the good news is that Kathy has been vaccinated and, and seems to be in really good spirits. And I was able to talk to her just a few minutes ago. But one of the really lovely things about being a little church is that, you know, we're not really beholden to the clock or to any other kind of thing. So we're going to interrupt the plan here just for a minute and pray for Kathy together um, and for their small group. So I'll lead us in that. But if you'll pray with me. God, thank you for our friends. Um, thank you for loving us. Um, thank you for being a God who works miracles and, um, and just a God who, who takes care of his people. Um, I pray, God, for our friend Kathy, that you will um, keep her spirits up and give her strength um, over the next week or so as she wrestles with this virus, which is, um, which is a scary thing. No matter the circumstances, it's a scary thing. Um, I pray that you will keep her spirits up, that you will help her body to recover quickly, God, that you will protect Fred and the other members of their small group um, who've been exposed, that you will keep them um, safe and keep their tests negative. Uh, and God, just that this, this little uh, moment will pass quickly for them and pass quickly through their house and their, their community. We love you for them. Um, we love them, I should say, and, um, and we're just grateful for the role they play here in our church family. We pray that you'll watch over them and keep them safe and um, bring them comfort. In your son's name, amen. Also true that we have some friends who are sick, so um, this is a great time for us to be present for them in whatever ways we can. So. It might be a good idea this week to send Kathy a text to see if there's anything that we can bring over, anything that we can do um, to help them out as they kind of wrestle with the virus. Uh, on that note, I can say from personal experience, having had it pass through my house for five weeks um, last, whenever that was, this spring, um, it's boring. So anything that you can think of that might um, help them <laughs> pass the time is, is I'm sure, going to be welcome to you. So... With all that said, um, I'll move on and share the message for tonight. So, here's the thing. Over the last few months, I have been avidly listening to a podcast, which is not news, but in this case, specifically, the podcast I've been listening to is called The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. Has anybody else been listening? Okay, nice. Um, this is a podcast that's being produced by Christianity Today, which is an evangelical Christian news outlet that I learned this week was actually founded by Billy Graham once upon a time. And when I say I've been avidly listening to this podcast, I mean that I like pounce on literally every episode that's released. The podcast is an investigation, if you're not familiar with it, it's an investigation into the life and the demise of Mars Hill Church in Seattle, Washington. If you're unfamiliar with Mars Hill, it was a church that was founded in the late 1990s by the pastor and author Mark Driscoll, who was best known for his aggressive and macho teachings on Christian masculinity. 
even if you've never heard Mark speak, you've probably heard messages or sermons that have flowed downstream from him over the last decade and a half. He talks a lot about gender roles, a lot about the strength and power of Jesus and the need for a tougher and more confrontational church. In 2014, Driscoll was functionally fired by the elders of Mars Hill, and within three months, the church, which had a membership of nearly 15,000 people, dissolved. So the podcast is this attempt to understand what happened. How could a church that had seen so much apparent success crumble so quickly? And the most glaring answer is that Driscoll had built an abusive and self-aggrandizing culture that was incapable of surviving without him, mostly because, as it turns out, it had always really been about him. But of course, but of course to the people who were there at the time, nothing could have seemed further from the truth. Most knew Driscoll was sometimes rude and even sometimes offensive, but they saw his roughness as necessary for shaking up a stale church culture, and the financial and the numerical growth of the church became evidence to them of the effectiveness of his approach. And this ends up being kind of a key refrain in the podcast. If the question is, how could the church have allowed such an unhealthy and an abusive culture to develop under the pastor's leadership? The answer time and time again is, well, look at the fruit. Look at the fruit, which is this way of saying in Christian culture, we're growing, right? People are being baptized. Our pastor's podcast has millions of listeners. Our tithe income is up every quarter. We're growing. Look at the fruit. When we, when churches see these kinds of markers of success, it's easy, I think, to think that these are evidence of God's favor upon us, of God's blessing on us, and not just on us, but on our approach to Christian ministry, our approach to our faith. But is that actually the best takeaway? That's kind of the 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 sore spot the podcast keeps digging into for me. Is that the best takeaway? Or more importantly for our conversation tonight, here's what I want you to write down if you're the writing down sort. Otherwise, it's only two words, so you should be able to just hold it in your mind either way. But here's the question. Who benefits? Who benefits? In 2015, our own church was at its largest, with around 250 people attending each Sunday. Some of you were here back then. But underneath the surface of that church with 250 people showing up every Sunday, something wasn't working. Even though more people were walking through the doors, they weren't connecting, they weren't making any real relationships. The core volunteers, if you were a volunteer back in that season, you would know it was the same people that were here when the church was half that size. Each year in that season, we were running these big events. You may remember some of them. They were aimed at reducing food insecurity in our community. And these events were being covered in the newspaper every year, and they were making a difference, a real difference here and even around the world. But our leadership at the time was wrestling with what it meant for a church to be successful 
And if the defense at that time had stopped with, well, look at the fruit, I think it would have been really easy for us to pat ourselves and to pat our church on the back and to keep going in the direction that we were going. But that question for tonight, who benefits, was a nagging one. Was it Annapolis that benefited? Was it our neighbors? Or was it mostly revolution? And is that even a bad thing if a church's goal is to help people? I wasn't on staff here at Revolution until the fall of 2016, but when I was hired, our planting pastor, Josh Burnett, was already wrestling pretty intensely with a particular passage from the Old Testament book of Jeremiah. You can find it in chapter 29 if you're, if you're looking. And to set up the context a bit, what we're reading here in Jeremiah 29 is a letter from the prophet Jeremiah to a group of leaders and priests, leaders and priests from among the Israelites who had been carried off to the kingdom of Babylon after the Babylonians had conquered and utterly destroyed their home in Israel. Those Israelites had been taken into exile. They'd been taken into exile, first as hostages, whose survival was going to depend on whether or not uh, the remaining Israelite villages in the region kind of submitted and played ball. And then second, they were being taken to Babylon as these candidates for a kind of re-education to take place in Babylon, which was going to solidify the Babylonian hold on cultural power all kind of throughout the region. And with their homes and their cities and their temples destroyed, the mood of these Israelites was dire. And you can imagine why. There's no way to look at the fruit, to look at that moment, and to not think God has abandoned us. God's abandoned us. He's left us to ruin and he's even stood by as his own name was disgraced. Even, even if this was just not even a matter of us as a nation, if this was just a matter of God's name and character, God's temple has been destroyed and his name has been mocked. The people were broken, and if there was to be any glimmer of hope for them, one imagines that it might come from somebody like Jeremiah, who's a prophet, who might yet promise them some miracle. But instead, this is what Jeremiah writes. He says, This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. We pause and say, I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. Also, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers you too will prosper. I think you got to admit, this is a curious passage, right? God says to these people who feel that he has completely abandoned them, even betrayed them, he says to them, be good Babylonians. Build houses, plant gardens, raise families, be good citizens, seek 
the Babylonians' prosperity, which is a truly revolutionary call. And in the next verses, Jeremiah explains why the Israelites are supposed to behave this way. He says, because in his own time, in God's own time, for the sake of his own glory, God will bring them home. He says it's not going to be in your lifetime, and it's not going to be in your children's lifetime, but when God is ready, He will do it, and it is not your job to make it happen because it's not your glory. He'll make it happen in His own time. You can't make it happen because it's not your glory. When Josh was wrestling with this text, when Revolution was wrestling with this text, I think what was happening under, under the surface for us is that we were tempted in that moment to see the fruit of our ministry here in Annapolis as evidence of what we were doing right instead of evidence of God's power and kindness. Hear me really clearly when I say this. I am not saying there was anybody here in the church or on staff or in leadership who ever believed that thought or said that out loud. What I am saying, though, is that we were facing a temptation that many apparently successful churches must face in a culture like the one we live in. We were being tempted to find the logic behind God's blessing to look back on ourselves and to identify our own wisdom and how it led us to this place and kind of pat ourselves on the back for it. In the next few years from this moment, that phrase from Jeremiah 29, to seek the, the peace and prosperity of the city, became kind of a, a mantra behind the scenes at our church at Revolution. But how could we actually pursue that Mantra. How could we let go of the desire to be the only ones in the city who could fix the problems, to be the heroes of the story here in Annapolis? How could we stop doing that or, or give up on that and instead adopt a culture of radical and generous belonging, which is what we talked about? What would need to change in our church culture to make that happen? In 2017, my family and I moved here downtown mostly for this very reason, because we wanted to be literal neighbors in the city. And from the pulpit here at Revolution, we, Josh, mostly me, other speakers who would speak, we started talking about and trying to create systems behind the scenes for connecting folks, not just to the kind of once-a-year big opportunities for doing good that we had been in the habit of creating, but instead to routine opportunities where they could partner with existing organizations that are already here in our city and already doing good work. We stopped trying to create revolution events and started trying to plug into the events that had already been started by others. One of the first jobs that Josh gave me when I came on staff was I was tasked with trying to rebuild or, or renew our partnerships with other churches, which weren't in a great state at the time. And in 2018, when Josh left the staff here at Revolution, part 
of his purpose in leaving was to try and move this very same work beyond our church itself. The company that he founded, which is called Flourish, takes its name from that passage in Jeremiah 29 where the Israelites are called to seek the flourishing of the home of their enemies. And here's the thing. I am not trying to set up a contrast between revolution and Mars Hill, even if it probably seems like that's exactly what I'm doing. And I also need to say that we haven't done a perfect job trying to pursue change in our city, and Mars Hill didn't do a terrible job of trying to pursue change in their city. We're all messed up people at the end of the day, and we're mostly trying to do our best. But what I think we can do tonight, what I think we can do tonight is to try to draw analogies between church-level experiences in Christian culture and experiences at our own level. You remember the question for tonight, right? Who benefits? When we host a blood drive in our city, is it for our own self-satisfaction? Or is it for our neighbors who need blood? When we forgive medical debt, do we do it to make ourselves famous? Is it marketing? Are we trading a person's debt to the hospital for a new debt to us as their rescuers? Or do we forgive, do we forgive it solely because it was a burden that somebody was carrying? And in our own lives, are we seeking our own glory, our own promotion, our sense of ourselves as good people? Are we truly trying to lift up others? Are we praying that God's going to open our eyes to recognize other people's dignity and respond to it? And if we're successful, if we see fruit or blessing or privilege in our lives, do we set about trying to explain it by tying it to our own righteousness or our own good behavior? To explain why we have it, what we did to deserve it, what hard workers we are. Or do we see privilege as evidence not of our glory, but of God's glory and kindness? And these are all really abstract questions. That's true. But as is often the case, I think Jesus grounds, grounds those questions. In fact, I think Jesus is Jeremiah's challenge to the Israelites when they are facing exile. He is that challenge incarnated. Because what is Jesus if not God himself in the home of his enemies seeking their benefit and their flourishing for their own sake? In his letter to the Philippians, the early evangelist Paul quotes the lyrics of this song that had become a routine part of worship in first century churches. And the song goes like this. Jesus, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, 
God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I'm surprised you didn't sing along with me. You should work on this one, Sarah, if you can put a melody to that. The original is in Greek, so one imagines that it rolls off the tongue a little easier in Greek. But what is the song saying here? Well, it's saying that at the root of Jesus' ministry, at the very heart of Jesus' ministry, is Jesus' rejection of his own fame, of his own celebrity, of his own godhood even, for the sake of the people that he loves. Jesus humbles himself, and he becomes other-focused and obedient, a servant, even to the point of his own awful death. And then, because Jesus loved so generously, Jesus' example is lifted up, and God is glorified. So here's kind of the question, right? Who benefits from Jesus' life, death, and resurrection? Who benefits from Jesus' life, death, and resurrection? Deeply consider that question. Who benefits? The answer is that we do. And why do we reap such fruit? Did we work hard to deserve it? No. We benefit for one reason and one reason only. We benefit because God is good and God is kind. So when we seek the flourishing of the city, which is what we're talking about here tonight, when we seek the flourishing of the city, we need to remember to do that for the city's sake alone for our neighbor's sake, solely because God loves our neighbors, because God is good. And the easy way to say this is to love generously with no strings attached, which is a thing we've said before, but I got to say living this out turns out to be harder. It's really hard, actually, to live this out. And one of the reasons is because it feels like losing a lot. A few weeks ago, a friend of mine who has seen me personally kind of struggling with my own sense of worth and my own fears of failure in this job shared a story with me about another pastor who said the most important lesson they had learned about ministry was the importance of making peace with a life of cultural irrelevancy and uselessness. great. They wrote, this person wrote, that pastoral ministry cannot be measured with this world's tools, but nonetheless, many of us are, quote, embarrassed by our uselessness. And so, we exchange the mystery of the Spirit and truth for the tools of productivity, consumerism, and quantifiable growth. And the disaster isn't that these tools don't work but that these tools work incredibly well. But by choosing them, 
In a bid for usefulness and relevancy, we betray our holy orders and become shopkeepers. And the shops we keep are superb until they're not. Because the pastors who need to be necessary will, with these blunt tools in hand, do lasting damage to those we're called to serve and lead to Christ. Because people become means to an end. Meanwhile, on that very same day that I was sent this relatively depressing, if also true, um, thing about being a pastor, what popped up on my phone but an announcement that the latest episode of The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill had just dropped. So I did what I told you I did, which is I pounced on this episode immediately, not thinking that I just kind of got really bummed out by one thing, and now I'm probably going to get more bummed out by another thing, but that compounded later. In any case, the topic this past week was the seductiveness of power, of fame, and how the desire to grow the church can become a desire to grow a pastor's brand, and then the success, the fruit of that brand can then be used to justify all manner of abuses. And once again, the podcast leads us to the big question of the night, right, which is who benefits? And the whole thing is interesting, and the whole thing is convicting. But at the end, there's this interview with this guy, Andy Crouch, that really grabbed my attention. And Crouch talks about our culture's elevation of celebrity and the strange temptation that we so often fall victim to when it comes to admiring and even coveting fame. And he notes that one of the odd quirks of history is that Princess Diana and Mother Teresa died on the same day. He says that one of the keys, one of the keys to Princess Diana's fame and her legacy has always been that she was the people's princess, that she represented at a time this dream that anybody could live the fairy tale, at least for a while. But what Crouch points out is that this is just patently untrue. It's untrue particularly in Diana Spencer's case, because literally only one person gets to do that. Only one person gets to marry the Prince of Wales and become a princess. Everybody wants to be like her, but only one woman in the world got to be her. And this vision of celebrity, Crouch points out, is utterly restrictive and, and narrow, but when it comes to Mother Teresa, he points out that the complete opposite is true. He says, this is beautiful, he says, anyone could be like her, because all she is is a saint, and anyone can be a saint if they open themselves up to Jesus. We have not lacked for models of godly power. We just don't want the suffering that comes with it, the long stretches of anonymity and seeming ineffectiveness, the humiliation of being like your Lord. That part we would really rather not have. Which is a kind of soft way to end that. Anyway, he closes this whole thing by saying, any day I could wake up and say, I'm heading down that road to sainthood. Any day. But who would benefit? Who would benefit? 
Is my love aimed outwards at others? Am I secure enough in myself and who God says I am to walk that path? Or am I still seeking the validation and the respect of other people? Am I still craving recognition of my usefulness, even in the midst of doing good Christian things? Am I still craving recognition of my relevancy? In this series, we've been exploring the slogans and the key vision statements of our church's past in order to better understand where we want to go in our church's future. For the last five years, we've fixated on those words from Jeremiah that we might be a people who seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which God has carried us. But what I want us to add to that tonight is that we need to seek our city's flourishing for our city's benefit and not for our own. We need to seek it because sharing love and kindness in our neighborhoods gives people reason and permission to have hope that there really is a God of truth and power and justice in the universe. That's why they need to experience love. And we simply cannot let our hopes for our own success or our own fame get in the way of that mission. We can't do that. We can't insert ourselves between the hope that we exist to share in the world and the God whose goodness and glory can actually deliver it. There isn't room for middlemen, and I think in American churches in particular, we really, really want to be famous middlemen. That's what we want, and it's what we are coveting, and we just have to say no to that. We just have to. And it doesn't matter what that costs us or what happens or whether this little church succeeds or fails or gets famous or dies a, like a slow, miserable death. It doesn't matter because people in the world around us, in your neighborhood, in your workplace, need to believe and have permission to hope in the God of the universe and in a God who loves them and will bring justice to things. And you cannot get in the way of that. You can't. We can't. There is only room in this model for vessels and conduits and evangelists of God's love. That's all there's room for. So that's who we need to be. We need to be people who wake up each morning and choose a path that may seem totally useless and may seem totally irrelevant, but pour out love anyways with no strings attached, not as a marketing gimmick. And at a church level, we're going to keep doing this by joining others and refusing credit. That's the thing that we can do. At, uh, that's something, that's, that's what you can trust me to do. Like, I'm pastor of the church. This is my part of the job, is to make sure we keep joining other people in the work they do and refusing to take credit for the work that we do. That's, that's what I can control. I have never been prouder of our church in all 11 years of our history than I was last year when we built a collective of more than a dozen churches across our state to anonymously forgive the medical debt of more than 2,000 of our neighbors to a cash value of more than $6 million. And not one of those Marylanders, not one of them, got a letter with our logo on it. And I don't mean just the new logo. It didn't exist at the time. I mean, even the old logo. There was no logo 
on that letter, not of us or any other church. They received a letter that said only that their debt had been paid by the churches of Maryland. Does that mean that thousands of churches in our state got the credit for your work, for your generosity? Because that's what it was, right? Your actual generosity. Did other churches get that credit? Yeah. That's absolutely what it means. Are some of those churches probably real bad churches? I'm sure. <laughs> I'm sure. <laughs> Does it matter? No. It doesn't. Because if the question for the night is who benefits, the only acceptable answer to that question is people God loves. And for whose glory, the only acceptable answer is the glory of God. So that's the church level, but what about the personal level? What about your level? What can we do? I think we can choose to seek the flourishing of our neighborhoods, of our schools, of our workplaces, of our communities. We can serve wherever there are chances to serve, whether those places or organizations claim the same brand of Christianity that we claim or not, or no brand. We can show up. We can share stuff. We can welcome in. We can house. We can donate. We can work. We can clean up. Or we can help to build. If you are not serving somewhere in our community, it's time to try to find a way to do this. It matters. And I'll say this too. If you've got a spare Sunday morning, which one of the perks of a Saturday night church is, I know that, you, that at least sometimes you do. If you've got a spare Sunday morning, go worship with your neighbors. It's okay. And showing up with them matters. It matters. The whole of God's plan, the whole of God's plan is for His creation. The whole of His plan for His creation, I should say, is to bring us back from ourselves and the messes that we have made through the power of His overwhelming kindness and love. That's the plan. And the call of the Christian life is to participate in that wildness and through that participation to bear witness as God's kingdom comes here to this earth. What might happen if we took our eyes off our own success and cheered instead for the success of that kingdom over and above whatever our legacy might be in it? If we stopped claiming God's fruit as our own, if we recognize the pettiness of doing that, the narrowness of it. Well, I'll tell you this, it won't speed up our deliverance. We already covered that back in Jeremiah 29. God's words to the exiles in Babylon are God's words to us too. And our actions, whether they are right or wrong, whether we do a great job being a church or a terrible job being a church, whether you do a great job of being a Christian or you do a terrible job being a Christian, none of that is going to speed anything up on God's end. He's going to do what he wants in the time that he's already set. It's not up to you. But man, what if the real benefit that we're chasing is just bearing witness to the stuff he does, having our eyes open to see it, being in a place where we can let go of our own insecurities and ego enough to just see God's love at work 
in our lives and the lives of others, to be excited about that. I would love for us to be a church like that, a church where we are rooting for love to win just because love is better and because Annapolis needs it, and that's it. And the recognize and appreciate the privilege that it is that for whatever amount of time we've got, we have the chance to share it, to be people who participate in the little ways in God's work that he's doing for his own glory. That's not a very good ending, but that's all I got. That's how it, <laughs> that's how it stops. Here's what I'm excited about. I'm excited that in a second we get to celebrate communion together. And that's just good. That's just good. So I'm going to pray for us, and then we'll receive communion and worship. God, thank you for loving us, and thank you for doing what you want to do in your time for your own glory. And God, I just pray that we will open our eyes and just revel in the chance we have to watch that happen, to even participate in some small way in it, God. But I pray that you will free us from the desire to claim any amount of fruit or any amount of credit for what you are doing. But God, I also know that in my own life, there is no way that I'm going to be free enough to feel that until you show me in a way that I can't miss who I am. Show me that your love is enough. Show all of us that, that your love for us is enough. It's enough. And we don't need to do anything to earn it. We don't need to do anything to keep it. There is just such freedom and beauty if we just let ourselves experience it and believe it, and then you can use us to do amazing things for your glory.